This podcast is offered by Jikoji Zen Center on the web at jikoji.org. Our programs are made possible by donations from people like you. Happy New Year, everyone. Uh, thank you for coming today to Jikoji for our Sunday program. Uh, we value each of you and Hope we can be of some use. Um, in the last day or so, um, we had a conversation here during our Zazen Kai, or the, it was called the Dharma Palooza. Uh, it was pretty successful. We didn't make it to midnight on New Year's Eve. Uh, you know, going to bed early is really a treat, and it doesn't matter which day of the year it is. So, uh, though we had a vast, great intention of doing these vows and holding a service, we sat a couple periods, and then as like, we're done, we're toast, we're well done, we're burnt toast. <laughs> So uh, for those of you who showed up at um, 11.45 expecting to see some action, uh, we're sorry to this, this have disappointed you. But in these last couple of days, we've also talked about language. Uh, we, we looked at a section of uh, the Avatam Saka Sutra that talked about different ways of engaging different languages to use. All languages can be used. And one of the points I brought up that I wanted to uh, make a correction to is, you know, I was hoping that um, this world this year would, would go, become more civil, more civilized, more, have more civility. And um, I, I want, there's a problem with that. When it's, um, when we need to have difficult conversations sometimes, we use the notion of civility as a bludgeon to uh, correct those that aren't uh, civil in the way we think it should be. And it's also used as a, almost an elitist way of um, putting those that may have a different status, a lower status, uh, no status, um, it's a way of separation, separating. And so the notion of civility uh, I'd like to express is, I wanna read from a book um, that someone, someone has sent me um, some copies of a book from a local fellow. He's from planet earth. Uh, his name is Christopher Colin. He's also, um, has roots in Texas, where he had a grandma who was, uh, I'll call her a Zen master, though she didn't know it. And many of us have relatives who are or were Zen masters of sorts. They were masters in figuring out this existence. Um, he went, he, he grew up in Texas. He was the one of the first in his family to go off to college to the prestigious school of NYU, only to find out 
that uh, it wasn't all that prestigious because someone he knew who had gone to Yale for his undergraduate degree, didn't get into Yale for graduate school and had to go to NYU. And so there are all these ways we separate and look at pedigrees and look at how, where we stand in the midst of others. And to get to the heart of the matter requires us to be gentle in how we hold these standards that we may use on ourselves, but to apply them to others may not be useful. To uh, get into the dangerous realm of language, I wanna bring up this story um, about uh, Christopher Colin's grandmother, the Zen master. Uh, she considered herself white trash and um, uh, raised her family being a waitress. And one day the owner of the Ford dealership came into the cafe where she was a waitress and said, you know, if I don't sell a few more Fords, I'm gonna lose my ass. And her retort was, if I don't sell some ass, I'm gonna lose my Ford. <laughs> so pardon me. When we can turn things inside out and we have relatives who do that, we need to, we need to bow to them, I think. But this, this young man, Christopher, maybe he's a middle-aged young man now, um, has uh, gone on a mission through the Glide Cathedral in San Francisco to um, help with conversations that are difficult. And uh, uh, this is what I want to draw on a little bit today um, because uh, language is what we use to navigate a lot of what we do, and yet how we use it, it's, it's not so clear. And I'm still learning. There's uh, the poet and activist um, Audre Lorde who uh, is quoted as saying, it is not our differences that divide us. It is our inability to recognize, accept and celebrate those differences. So to actually look at our differences, a lot of times it takes a lot of work to um, examine self-examination, to see why we're resistant to these differences. And um, part of this work we do of um, working on our ego, uh, examining our ego, um, um, finding that the more we examine it, the uh, more gratitude we actually feel for all these things in our lives that supports us. 
So um, part of what the work we do is actually uh, deconstruction of our ego. And I think that's what happens when we um, have a chance to see how we are in a certain context. Um, in order for us to reconstruct, we have to disassemble. And these patterns are exhibited everywhere. For example, if you are doing a bathroom remodel, you have to deconstruct before you can make it as you want. If you bought a house and in, a, in, in Santa Barbara or Atherton and you want to tear down the house, you realize that the only way you can do it affordably is to leave one wall standing so that it is considered a remodel and not a reconstruction. So there are all these nuances of redefining how we go about this business of deconstruction. But part of um, the deconstruction that is going on today that I think is happening in many communities, for example, is um, uh, looking at police forces and the scope of work that they have and maybe that doing um, intervening in family disputes isn't too helpful, especially when your population is quite diverse and your police force is not. So, so part of, of the reconstruction is deconstructing. And um, so, Through reconstruction, we can recognize and accept the dignity of every person, but we have to deconstruct things in order for that recognition, that broad recognition of respect to manifest. Um, one quote I'd like to share from Christopher is this. He says, the rules of civility can be misused to dismiss the accumulated anger of someone's lived experience. When stories of oppression evoke difficult emotions, our unspoken response shuts down the converse conversation by shutting down the person who is making us uncomfortable. Yet discomfort is an essential part of healing. And I think some of us have been through some processes where we've been injured and, and the hurt of healing is a part of the healing. So um, civility is something that I ask of myself, but not of someone whom society has granted less power than I have. Attempting to enforce the rules of civility without acknowledging the power asymmetry 
may create more resentment and further the division than the conversation of an, the intended healing. So um, in this, in this uh, last couple of days, um, on Friday, uh, Mike gave the talk and he, we talked about different aspirations. And one of the aspirations that was brought up here was to be open. That was John's aspiration to be open to things. And vulnerability is part of that openness. And the vulnerability, part of that vulnerability is also being able to feel where we're vulnerable, which takes actually practice. We have to practice, we have to experience that vulnerability and usually we just react out of that, out of our feeling instead of having a sense of, oh, where, how, do, how does this feel? And so um, I think many of us here in this practice are beginning to have a sense of this, um, not in any necessarily formal way, but just incidentally. When differences arise and potential uh, conflict can occur, it's, it's, I'm gonna uh, bring up some examples of how this difficult tension, difficult and necessary tension that occurs in these conversations um, indicators of how of resolution. I'm going to read from an experience of uh, a fellow named Tony who was a skinhead, a neo-Nazi. And Chris asked him, he said, I, I asked him if punching someone or performing other acts of violence dissuade people from engaging in hate, hate groups. And Tony responded, he said, never once did I question what I was doing because of potential violence. In fact, it was the badge of honor. Violence was used as pretext to justify more violence. But the, the Tony's life turned around at one point and I got to take off my mask because my, my glasses are fogging up. The trajectory of Tony's life turnaround follows a common pattern for those who leave hate groups. Tony said that an emotional numbing consumed more than a decade of his life. Emotional numbing is a common characteristic. This numbing allowed him to inflict pain on people. That began to thaw when he held his newborn daughter for the first time. 
Babies are safe to love, he says, and safe, safely feeling this love connected him to his heart for the first time in years. Tony discovered that people involved in hate, hate groups, whether white supremacists or Muslim jihadists, suffer from some unresolved childhood trauma that has disconnected them from their hearts. So the way to dehumanize other human beings is a mirror on how dehumanized inside we are, how disconnected we are from our own humanity, Tony said. Another reason people leave hate groups is they receive compassion from someone they had despised or dehumanized. For Tony, that disorienting feeling of compassion came from a Jewish counselor who continuously showed him kindness during his transformation. And Tony said, here's a man that loves me and wants to heal me. I'm sinking in the chair knowing that I once advocated annihilation of him and his people. If I see myself as unlovable and someone treats me with love, I can't help but become aware that there may be part of me that is worthy of love. Another skinhead, uh, Arno Michaels, Michaelis, um, who was a, uh, he was a skinhead and an anti-hate uh, activist and is now an anti-hate activist. He said that one day a black lady with a warm, loving smile saw the swastika tattoo on Arno's finger and said, you're a better person than that. This interaction started Arno's disillusionment with white supremacy and six years later, he left it, this life of hate. So to, to feel the warmth of a baby, to feel, to have an act of compassion from someone that you've dehumanized or think little of, can break some of these barriers. Some of these barriers are much harder to break. Um, there gets to be a social normalcy of, of neglect that is considered appropriate for some reason when, the, for example, the richest millionaire, billionaire senators in Congress uh, find it um, too expensive to give people in need support in these times, and yet for them to get a tax break in the companies that they're invested in is just fine. So in their case, the only uh, superior body to them are the American people, which are treated uh, I should say maligned in their treatment often.
So back to our, our language um, that we use uh, can and share um, to, um, it's, it's wonderful to have uh, high standards of language for ourselves, yet it's important to have an open hand of acceptance in the language of others. And in my life, I've had a chance to experience some of that in, in working with construction crews and of all different kinds and ethnicities. And, and uh, it's, it's what's actually delightful in some of that is to find out where the warmth is and how it is expressed. It may, it may jar you at first, but it is, it is indeed warm. When you get flipped off by someone that you dearly like, you would never dare say, I love you to that person, but you can, you can say F you to them or just motion to them and know that it's an embrace of, of the best quality. So this year is gonna be a year, I think, of language use, of connecting to each other, of um, finding ways to listen. And uh, what I'd like to do is open it up now to um, hear from you and maybe what has arose in you this last year, um, in these last days uh, from this talk, I just would like to open it up. Thank you. Yes, Kathy. I was hoping someone would go before me. I really want to thank you for this talk. Um, I think it's it's really wonderful when we are judging another to look at ourselves and love ourselves and love the other. I love, I love a couple of the stories that you gave us, the one about the swastika on the finger and the one about the grandmother who said, if I don't sell my ass, I'll lose my Ford. And those are both really wonderful examples of how if we can 
recognize our delusions and flip them on their sides. Um, it's a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful thing because the first, the first impulse, of course, is to flip the person off or to be aggressive or to be violent. And yet to, um, I think a lot of the stories that you talk about illustrate that when one gives forth acceptance, um, something opens up on both sides. And I love what John put for an aspiration for this year to be more open. And I think it's a great idea to aspire to be more open to the people that we dislike and to um, allow ourselves to see through that veneer. And that veneer is probably coming out of some childhood injury. And if we can open up and see the person behind that, um, it's wonderful. And it's good not only for us, but also for them, especially if we can do nothing more than even smile at them. So thank you. That was a really good start to a new year and a really good aspiration for us to be able to look at ourselves, deconstruct the ego little by little, and um, honor the other. Thank you so much, Doug. I really appreciate it. Uh, thank you, Kathy. Um, Kaveh's not here, but yesterday he brought up the, I, I, I think it was yesterday, or maybe it was the day before, he brought up the story of uh, uh, Robin Williams just uh, being hugged, you know, walking down the street and people coming up and hugging him. Just, he was just that open a person in that. And, and he wondered if where, where his ego was. And, and uh, I wonder, you know, we, we work with our ego and we carry our ego. And sometimes uh, my, the way I carry my ego, it, it has bristled in the past. It had sharp edges to it. And, and if a person has worked their ego enough so that it recedes into where it belongs, which is as a secondary element to our life because our attention is... Is, is, is out to the world, out to give, to share, to be, to not be an independent ego, but an interdependent being. Um, the ego is still there, um, but it just is um, there and not interfering in, the, in these ways of being that are wholesome. Anyway, thank you, Kathy, for your comments.
Yes, Randy. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, all of you. Um, well, you probably brought up the most difficult path uh, that we have as human beings. And I think it somehow connects also with our Bodhisattva vow, saving all sentient beings and just seeing uh, that. But this, this time in history is, um, boy, it is. Uh, and we, we live a life where it comes at us. I mean, if we're tuned into the news, if we're not living in a bubble somewhere, but we listen to the news, look at the uh, stuff on the internet, this and that, it, uh, stuff gets touched off a lot in terms of reacting. I feel myself anyway, I'm talking for myself, you know, reacting to what people have to do or say. And I think this morning I really got going my, I think my daughter or someone's bringing up something on the internet, uh, some new stuff about Fresno, which is right down the road from me. Um, about this group of people, I think at a Trader Joe's that were hassling people trying to go in with masks saying they shouldn't have masks. And I just, and you know, part of me just, and, and then I try to kind of knock it down to what would I say to that person? What would I say? And, and the best I could do was, I'm not trying to take away your freedoms because they're talking about all the freedom being taken away. I'm just trying to stop the spread of a disease. And I don't know if they'd hear it, but it, it was much better than the first stuff I thought about telling them, uh, <laughs> which was really out of a lot of anger, you know, and just kind of like, what, that, what, you know, what are you doing? I mean, but it's, it, I mean, it, uh, yeah, I mean, you, 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 uh, you have, um, yeah, it, it's a good topic for the beginning of the year. And uh, maybe, um, I don't know if people that sit have New Year's resolutions, you know, but <laughs> not a bad one to kind of look at how we react to different situations. And, you know, we do that all the time, but maybe in a deeper way, but you, you you laid it out pretty good uh, in terms of different ways to approach that. So thanks. Yeah, it's hard to uh, know what to say sometimes. And um, I guess one example that comes to mind is, is like stop signs are uh, a a safety, a common safety feature that we all agree to that protects everybody. And likewise, our masks can be uh, protected each other that way too. So if you, maybe these people, you'd ask them, or maybe that's, this is taunting though, is to ask them, would you run a stop sign because it violates your freedom? No, it's, uh, there. And how to, I, I don't know, I, the, how to do these conversations is really tricky. And what it's important to do, and, and this guy, Christopher Collins, he talks about it as a tension, but it's an essential tension that I guess if you stay with attention, you can then 
you, there's some opportunity to work with it. And I, I know some people here at Jacoji that have some skill at that. Uh, I see one right here, Hogan is one person I, who seems to have a lot of skill at just, okay, what's going on now with me? Where is it my feeling in the body? And, and he just takes the time. And I really, it's really a wonderful example to have, a living example of that, to have that here at Jokoji. So thanks for your question and thank you, Hogan. That was a twofer. Yes, Jackie. Hi, thank you for the talk. I love talks about words, you know, I love words. One of the things about us being all interconnected is that we're actually not all interconnected and that we live in different realms of conversation. And when we hear someone else's words, we need to remember their realm of conversation and experience within those which those words are emerging and and feel where it's coming from in that person's experience. Um, and then maybe that helps to get beyond the surface meaning of the words. Um, a person who won't wear a mask doesn't think that it's a danger to not wear a mask. They don't live in the same universe of meaning around COVID transmission that we wear the masks are living. And we might say they're wrong, but we need to explore that. If we are not really aware of where people are coming from, you know, that's hard. And that's still at a more superficial level than the feeling level where Hogan is getting to like, where are you feeling this in your body? I like that a lot, you know, but um, that's just, I don't know if I have more to say about that that's cogent, but I know when I hear people talking in these ways, I do try and like my Minnesotan relatives who are farmers and they say, what do we think? What do they think? We're stupid and they're not stupid. And they think they feel attacked and they don't hear what our conversation is about. We're not hearing what their conversation is about and opening up and continually opening up, continually opening up and talking to each other um, that's the only way, I think. And the way we are becoming in silos with social media, I mean, that's, we all know that's, that's really a bad thing. And just talking to people, talking across walls and feeling them and exposing yourself, your feelings, you know, that's all, that's, that's what I'm picking up from your talk today, and it's really valuable. So thank you. Thank you, Jackie. Um, one of the things that happens is when uh, moisture rises, seeds sprout. And in a way, the um, warmth of heart and openness is nurturing so that the seeds, um, the Buddha seeds, if everybody has Buddha nature, 
then maybe that's that's how we can dissipate some of the moisture is with warm heartedness to encourage those seedlings and others. Um, yeah, thank you, Jackie. Michael? Yeah, so I've got a question for, uh, for you or anyone else. Uh, just as far as, uh, I guess you'd call it technique or, or, um, or, or skill maybe, that when you're in a, when you hear um, difficult conversations or, and, and you're in a state of, when you're in a state of reactivity or you're, you feel yourself entering a reactive state, you're kind of flooded with, uh, I don't know what it is, emotion, adrenaline, uh, you, you know, uh, passion. Uh, so we're, we're, we've heard a, we've heard a difficult conversation or we've heard some difficult words and we, we feel the arising of reactivity in our body in our, we feel kind of flooded with a, uh, an emotional response, either to react or maybe to contract, with, to withdraw. So it, I feel like that's like a critical time, or at least I feel in my experience, it's a critical time, like to kind of, how do we catch it? And, in, and how do we catch it? Can we catch it? Can we have the skill to catch it? And what, how, do we, how do we catch it? How do we hold it? How do we open it? Like, so that kind of critical point, I'm wondering if we could focus on that a minute. And what, I'm wondering what, what to do, what to do. Yeah, that's a critical moment that, uh... Uh, once you react in that moment, it's almost like the, the normal chain of events keep happening. Yeah, um, you're almost a victim yourself. You, yeah. You victimize yourself with that. Yeah. Yeah. So um, um, there are many techniques one can use of taking a deep breath or 10 deep breaths or leaving the scene and saying, excuse me, uh, I'll be back to uh, get a sense of stability before returning. But, but it also, it takes some skill to do it in practice. And I've, I've returned even more fierce. You know? <laughs> now I got my words together and now I'll really nail you. <laughs> and of course that isn't useful. So, um, but the, the feeling of it is, is really the first thing, I think, is um, these words, I, I am, uh, how do I feel right now? And then because this whole confusion comes up of the reaction and then how the body feels. But if you turn your attention from, from the words to the reaction and the feeling, I think that's a start. 
Does anyone else have any suggestions? Yes, Susan, Tova. Thank you for this opportunity to discuss what is so essential in ourselves and in our country right now and in the world. What comes to mind is a technique I've read about. <laughs> uh, I haven't have practiced somewhat, but um, there's a three part technique and the essential part is the stopping. And it's, it's pretty uh, interesting for me to be witnessing um, cumulative knowledge and wisdom here in this Zoom room, this Zen Zoom room here, we have many, many 10,000 hours of meditation people and experience. And so I have heard that that experience of stopping arises with the act of sitting, with the, with the cumulative act of sitting, we are many, many, many times returning to the breath. So we're stopping the thought, we're stopping the distractive, discursive storyline. And we're saying, oh, I'm, I'm stuck in story and I'm going back to the breath. Every time we do that, we build what Pema Chodron called nobility, or, you know, she said it was a heroic act. Every time we come back, to the, to the moment. So if we can do that on our cushion, as Mike is saying, how do we do it in the fire of an encounter? Well, I'm hoping, and I have little glimmers in my own life, that I do it occasionally more. That that ability to shift to the present, to the, to the, somatic experience starts to be more familiar and it then is available to us when we are really in danger or really in a situation of need. Thank you. One of the techniques that um, Christopher Collins uses is um, like he brings opposing people together, uh, willingly together. They wanna come together and talk. And for example, one time they, uh, um, the group came together and they talked about what, um, what values, what childhood, what family values they have and how they, um, uh, came about and how they use them. <clears throat> and uh, he, he cited one, a um, uh, couple of women in the group. One was very anti-abortion and believed in life, sustaining life for young children and babies. And the other believed in choice, but also they they, in that conversation that they would normally, these were two women, so they probably wouldn't have come to blows, but they both saw that their values were the same. And the tactic in which they implement their values are different. 
So to see the values we have as opposed to the tactics we use is, is an aspect to consider. Um, uh, gosh, it's easily two years ago, I think, maybe two, approaching two and a half years ago uh, here at Jokoji, during Denkaway, we studied the Satipatthana Sutra. And uh, Taizan and Jen uh, led our practice uh, sessions, which were just wonderful uh, of how we used language. And I think stopping was one of the aspects or pausing was one of the aspects that was brought up in the Satipatthana Sutra. Was that right, Taizan? Yeah. Yes, that really brings up a wonderful uh, remembrance of that, you know, that uh, that you and and Mike, you know, asked Jen and I to do this insight dialogue, it was called. It's a technique by Gregory Kramer. And it basically has six <laughs> six steps instead of three harder to remember maybe, but the first one is to pause. And it's described as kind of returning to um, mindfulness, you know, just kind of pausing. The second is to, is to relax. And as Hogan, uh, in, you know, talks about to look in the body and see what's happening as I'm hearing this, like as I'm hearing this about the mask, I can feel attention right in my solar plexus. That's where it manifests for me and in my stomach. And so I kind of noticed that. Then the third thing is to open, which is really hard. And it's that kind of a process where as we get worked up, you know, as we get angry, um, just by evolution, we tend to narrow our focus onto the thing that we find to be potentially um, dangerous. So to open is counterintuitive, very difficult, but the, but the breathing really uh, facilitates that as a practice. If we can kind of not just remember it occasionally, but you know, as, as Susan said, make it a practice that we do where when we, we feel ourselves, we're watching the news and we're feeling ourselves getting that tightening wherever it is, that we actually do that that we stop for a moment, maybe close your, close your eyes, pause, notice what's happening. And, you know, it's a difficult one, uh, but it's a wonderful practice. Then it changes into this thing I had never heard about, and it's called trust emergence. Mm -hmm. And I had never heard of this kind of as a idea, but it's the idea that like in mindfulness, as the dust kind of settles or, you know, as we can become a little bit calmer, things appear, emerge, that um, are given a kind of a chance. And then the fifth one is to listen deeply. And how we facilitated it was we had these periods where for like three to five minutes, we couldn't speak. We couldn't help, we couldn't offer all the things that we do 
in normal conversation where we're agreeing and helping people and kind of affirming what they're saying or anything. There was, there was to be no response other than to listen and allow as many pauses as there needed to be. And all of that was a very difficult thing. And then the last thing is to speak your truth, recognizing that, uh, you know, as Kathy said too, your truth and Jackie too, your truth might not be the truth of someone else. So truth is kind of one of those things that's not a singularity. It's something that's kind of held as a definition of perception, you, you might say, but to speak your truth. And in that way, I would say it really helps if you can speak skillfully and not to uh, contradict what you said, uh, but I think that it will be heard much more likely if we speak uh, very skillfully. And, um, and so anyway, those are the six different ones. Thank you for bringing that up, Doug. Good. Thank you for, for bringing that, uh, bringing those six items out again. Thank you. Yes, Pamela. Um, one thing that has worked for me when I can do it is when someone is, you know, when my, when I feel a big response coming to language in particular, um, I, I kind of can sometimes see what the person is saying as an offering. Like they're offering me a point of connection because language is used to communicate, to connect. And when I remember that other people are using their language to find a bridge to see if they belong to me, if they can find a way of connecting to me through these words, even though, you know, it's not really the place at which I'm going to necessarily connect. But if I can see it as a, like almost like someone giving me a hand, like wanting to hold hands, even though it might be vitriol to me, when I can see it as someone reaching out, which I can do sometimes. And when I do it and I see it as their way of seeing, do we belong to each other? Then I just am short circuiting kind of my own habitual response and so that's what works for me. Having raised two teenagers, <laughs> that worked a lot. And it also happens in the world when people say stuff that, you know, frankly gets me going. I remember that they're just like me and they're just really, I mean, I think that's what we're all doing all the time with our words and uh, is trying to communicate who we are and how we're related. And sometimes I can short circuit my responses that are not gonna be skillful or helpful by just remembering that they're reaching out to me. This is the way they know how to reach out to see if we can understand each other. And then I should probably listen really carefully to the words beneath the words to see if there's a place at which we can hear each other. Yes, techniques of uh, short circuitry are in order. Thank you. Others may have uh, come up with short circuitry ways too. Yes, Mahesh. Yeah. 
I have uh, read a book. Probably some of us have, might have read that too. Like called Crucial Conversations. Um, it talks about the way to handle these difficult uh, situations and conversations. Um, like where uh, uh, where you uh, deeply listen to what the other person is saying, um, and then you uh, uh, and then you repeat in your own words, uh, like uh, your understanding of what the base, so that to make them feel heard. Um, agree that it's a valid point. Um, um, like I mean, even though you disagree with it, right? Like uh, it can be a valid viewpoint. Just like uh, people who are insisting of not wearing the mask for their freedom, like you, you, um, and then uh, and then like us uh, uh, explore that, right? Like um, uh, with your questions and all those things, you can explore that. Provide your alternative opinions um, in a way that uh, like where you state the complete truth, uh, like. Uh, you have your point and you have their point. You state the whole thing, right? You say, "Okay, I understand you feel this way, and uh, but what about this?" Like, um, I think that that's a way to explore. And then, like as Tyson has mentioned, like trust emergence and these things take over from there. Uh, I think the main point here is to making them feel heard, uh, agreeing it's a valid point. That's something that we don't do in the heated point of conversation, uh, which can uh, lead to making it much more difficult conversation. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Yes, you're, you're correct, and, and uh, the, the most important thing is to that they feel heard. And for some of us, it's really hard to um, let another person know that they have been heard because maybe their language is hard to remember or we have a memory problem of being able to repeat what they said. We had one amazing priest pastor here who um, he lives up in Port Townsend and knows Larry Scoville and Red Pine. He could repeat back to you every word you had just said in the last three to five minutes. And I hear you saying this and he'd repeat exactly what a person would say. And it's like, what a talent. It was just unbelievable. Isaac Gardner, I think is the guy's name. And he has a one-room Zendo that has a, a room for, I think, one cushion, one or two cushions in it up there. I have to go up and sit in it sometime. Thank you, Mahesh. Yes, Hogan. Um, can, can, can you all hear me? Mm -hmm. Good. Um, thanks, everybody, for um, sharing what's coming up for them in this talk. Um, a couple of things that are lingering in my mind that I'm going to try to share are... Uh, Mike's question about, um, you know, how to navigate, how to navigate situations where I find myself moving out of a window of tolerance, uh, moving into a place where I'm going to be reactive. And, uh, and it is for myself. Um, I do notice it physically sometimes. And, uh, one of the things that helps me buy a little more time of tolerance to, to you know, to 
persist being pretty present is to just for me personally is to soften my belly, to bring my breath into my soft belly, let it extend. And this always feel every time I do this um, in reaction to myself feeling a bit triggered or a bit, you know, on guard, it feels very vulnerable to me to do this, to soften my belly and, and bring my breath into it. And, uh, but that vulnerability, I think, is one of the keys to um, remaining present, uh, remaining humble, too, for me. And, um, and also, it gives me a chance to maybe recognize where my impatience is starting to take over. And, 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 and usually that impatience, I think, comes from that I'm holding an agenda that I have a fixed view about what this conversation should be about or how long it should take or what the outcome should be. And um, if I can let go of that um, and just feel my soft belly and, and, and keep listening to the words coming at me or even gestures or even, or even what's happening, you know, it might not be verbal that's happening it buys me a bit more time. Um, and then to uh, thank you, Taizan, for remembering so clearly that the six steps that we practiced in that Sashin. Um, and the one that, uh, that was very new at the time, but I think I've got a better understanding of was the one that was trust emergence. And to me, that means... Um, letting go of my egoic will, um, recognizing it. It's, it's interesting uh, to recognize that it's there, that I have an, ego, an egoic fixed view about what this should be about, what I think it should be about. To let go of that and trust that whatever comes without me pushing in a particular direction is probably going to be okay. That's been really, that's been very helpful, very, very powerful for me. Um, hmm. Oh, um, the other thing that's been really helpful, and I'm, I'm trying to employ it right now, is, um, you know, I'm feeling uncomfortable uh, many times in these situations that Mike was asking about. There's just a great bit of discomfort, you know, something that I don't know how, how long I can tolerate feeling this way. But if I can remember to give myself permission to be feeling this discomfort, to be feeling this way, to give myself the permission to not know how to change it. You know, maybe I don't know how many, maybe I'm out of tools, maybe I'm out of patience to, to, to give myself permission that that's okay. You've, you've, you've done your best up until this moment. And maybe the next step is to be very vulnerable and say, I, I, I'm not present anymore. I'm sorry. I, I'm at my, I'm at my limit and I'm shaky inside. And, uh, I don't know if I can do this anymore. I'm sorry. I wish I was better, but this is how I am right now.
I just want to add one small point, which is that everything that's been said today about being angry and oppositional and up, I am hearing it in a different way because what I often tend to do is go into agreement, disappear, become like a dog showing its belly. And I find that very annoying about myself. And everything, all the wisdom that I'm hearing today from everybody, is just tingling in me right now because I'm just suddenly realizing you can use these skills for these issues too, whatever that is that, that happens when I go into that thing that I do where I just agree with people even though I'm not agreeing with them really underneath. I just don't want them to think badly of me. I don't want upset, you know, whatever it is. And so um, I, I'm probably not alone. So I, but I, and also just to say, I'm very happy to have this insight. Thanks. It's, that's good to hear, uh, Jackie, because all of us, you know, it's like we're in this, these conundrums of how do we work through and figure this out? And th this is really helpful to me too. Uh, thank you. Well, anyone else like to say, make a final comment? Just, just one more thing, Doug, um, that sort of came up to me, uh, I, th I think hearing Jackie when she's just speaking, and I think it's, um, I, I just thinking back to, um, uh, to marriage and being with somebody and living with somebody and disagreeing with somebody that I'm not the same person every day. Some things I can just kind of, okay, that's how she is. And, you know, and just, you know, it does not bother me, but other times it really does. So it's, it's just sort of this, uh, I don't know what I'm trying to say, but it's just sort of accepting where I am or being aware of them. I'm just not the same all the time. So I'm not hitting these places or these disagreements and stuff. Uh, um, you know, in, in a kind of a unilateral kind of way. It's, yeah, it's very different, so. Yeah. All right, well, let's do our closing chant. Pardon me? May our intentions equally extend to every being and place with the true merit of Buddha's way. Beings are numberless. I vow to save them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. The Buddha's way is unsurpassable. 
I vow to become it. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by Jokoji Zen Center. Our Dharma talks are offered free of charge, and this is made possible by the donations we receive. Your support helps us to continue to offer the Dharma. For more information about Jokoji, please visit us on the web at jokoji.org.